Welcome to Essential Ethics and the next podcast in our series, Deciding with Children. So far in the series, we've considered the moral theory that underpins deciding with children, the legal aspects with an analysis of Gillick competence, and then looked at deciding with children in a general sense with young children and then with adolescents. Today, we want to consider deciding with children in the management of children with chronic disease. Many of the children and adolescents with chronic disease have a tremendous lived experience of disease, which is in a sense abstract or distant to the rest of us, even if we are their treating clinicians. Many of these kids know more about their disease than we do in a way that we can't. I think that this opens up new possibilities to consider them as decision makers. I'm Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. Today we'll consider type 1 diabetes, a serious, long-term and at times volatile condition to manage. To do this, we are joined by Dr Michelle O'Connell, consultant endocrinologist at Royal Children's Hospital and mother of two, which I think might be important. Michelle, welcome to Essential Ethics. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. To help us navigate the moral maze that can arise in treating children with type 1 diabetes and to help us with considering decision-making in children, I'm joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, John. Now, I'd like you to indulge me with a little anecdote because in this space of deciding with children, type 1 diabetes has been really important to me. When I was a registrar doing an endocrinology term. I met a wonderful endocrinologist called Dr. Neville Howard. And what struck me about Neville was that when the child and family came in, he would get up and then make a real effort to sit the child next to him at his desk and the parents in the seats slightly further away. And at the time, this just struck me as really quite amazing. And uh, amazing because it was just so right. And amazing because no one else seemed to do it. And amazing because no one was teaching the registrars that this is how we should engage with children. And it stuck with me forever. And now that we're considering deciding with children, I can really see it for what it is, about respecting the child. And deciding with children starts with respecting the child and centering the child in the consultation. And then beginning a three-way relationship in the decision-making with the physician, the child, and the family. So this all began with diabetes, Michelle. So I think (laughs) that you're carrying on Neville's spirit today with us. And I think lots of us will have an idea about what diabetes is with high sugars and monitoring and insulin and things, but I don't think any of us will really understand what it is. So perhaps you might start, Michelle, by just explaining what, what is type 1 diabetes and What's life like for young people with diabetes? Yeah, sure. Thanks, John. So I guess with type 1 diabetes, as you say, it's a a long-term chronic condition. So it's a condition for which, uh, as things stand, uh, there is no cure. So essentially in type 1 diabetes, the body is unable to produce the hormone insulin. And that's a hormone that's really important for how we manage our 
body's blood sugar. So typically when we have something to eat, um, our body will break that down into glucose and then we need insulin to move that into our brain and our organs for use, our muscles. And so if you don't have insulin, the sugar just stays in your bloodstream and and you can't you don't have the energy that you need in your cells. So it's it's a condition that just can occur as a chance thing, to be honest. It's essentially bad luck. There are there are predisposing things, but it's not anything that the child does or doesn't do. And so a lot of kids will feel pretty hard done by, you know, when it when it um when they're diagnosed. So in terms of day-to-day management, the mainstay is basically replacing insulin that the child needs. And we do that, the only way that we can give insulin is by injection um, into the fat tissue. So kids will typically have four insulin injections a day. So that would be made up of an insulin injection before each of their main meals and then one that's there in the background, often given in the evening, that lasts for sort of 24 hours. And then, so that's, I guess, the the biggest day-to-day requirement. But on top of that, in terms of knowing how much insulin you need and where things are at and how you're running, we we ask kids to monitor their glucose levels. So that's an additional sort of big burden, I guess, day-to-day. Um, at a minimum, we ask them, again, to monitor at all those four time points. And then there would be other time points, like if they were, if they didn't feel well, if they felt like maybe their blood sugar was going low, then we'd ask them to check at that stage. We ask them to check if they're maybe doing more activity or sport, and sometimes overnight, particularly if things haven't been very steady on going to bed. Uh, Michelle, though, that, that is a finger prick test? So, yeah, usually finger prick test. So um, that's... That's the mainstay. There are, in the last few years, some ways of monitoring tissue glucose. So wearing a a little sensor that sits in the fat tissue that can then um, give information on what the the fat tissue glucose is doing. A lot of those devices also need finger prick glucose levels to correlate with. So that is usually an, an adjunct or an extra rather than on its own. But for some, there are some devices where it can be I guess, more autonomous. Um, Do the kids hate the finger prick more than the injection of insulin? Yeah, different kids are different, but um, but it, there are lots of kids who come to clinic tell us that they do take their insulin, but they couldn't tell you what their blood sugars are. They don't want to wear the, the continuous monitors. They don't like, you know, so some kids are very happy with those. Some kids really like the information that they give. Others really don't want to have something attached to them. Um, there are different devices that send glucose levels, say, to a phone or to a, a anything with Bluetooth, and and they can alarm at you if you go above or below a level. Parents like those, but wearers often don't like them because it's intrusive. It's also a constant in your face. This is what's happening with your glucose levels, you know. Well, really, you know, so, you know, there's that then sort of self-judgment all the time in terms of and you don't want to see what's what's happening if you're going high and you know you're going high because you just happen to really want that biscuit or whatever it was. So it's, you know, there's there is a lot involved in diabetes and, and the burden of diabetes is really well recognized, even though kids can lead and live really healthy and happy and typical lives that, you know, diabetes one of our mantras is that it shouldn't get in the way of what you want to do day to day. You should, we should be able to manage your diabetes around life and it shouldn't dictate, but it's certainly there as a constant presence. 
And Michelle, I mean, you've mentioned the, the needle side of things. What about the other things like diet and exercise, et cetera? Are those burdensome yeah. or add something in terms uh, of the management? Look, again, I guess there's, you know, a additional implications, shall we say. So we try and have diet as just healthy dietary advice rather than a long list of things that you can't have. Depending on how you do your insulin, so different kids will do different things, but for some children will have a set amount of insulin for a prescribed amount of food. It doesn't have to be the same exact food each day, but the same amount of carbohydrate in the food. So all of that is just, I guess, a bit more thought that needs to go into the planning of the day as opposed to I haven't had my lunch and, you know, that's okay. I don't feel, you know, I'm hungry, but I'm fine as opposed to, you know, your blood glucose could be impacted by that. Michelle, it still sounds like quite a medicalised life on a day-to-day basis. And I imagine that there is also medical appointments that they need to come to. Absolutely. Yeah. So we come come to the hospital uh, four times a year, usually three to four times a year. So there's, I guess, in terms of all of that, the reason that we do all of that is that the goal of, of diabetes is to have your glucose levels on on your insulin and day to day as close to the non-diabetic range as is possible. Um, or there's a test that we can do that looks at sort of overall management. And basically it's looking at how much glucose has been circulating in your bloodstream attached to your red blood cells. And that gives us an idea of over the last three months. And there's sort of specific targets for where that level should be. That test is called the HbA1c and also targets for what we want glucose levels to be before meals. And I guess it's that's one of the big, you know, I guess transferring of care in terms of, so we teach kids all about this at the beginning, but then then it's up to them to to run that day to day and to make those changes. Obviously, at the beginning, there's a lot of support in terms of, you know, contact with our, our team and our, we have a team of specialist nurse educators um, who will make dose adjustments and sort of explain why they're changing something. But then the young people really, or their families, depending on their age, need to take that on as well so that it's, you know, you're doing these, but then you also have to interpret all those glucose levels and work out what you change sort of say to people, it's not a condition where you can say this is your dose and that will be it for the next three months. It's constantly changing depending on what's going on. But it's also not a disease you can have a little holiday from. No. So I look after kids with cystic fibrosis and I know they take regular little breaks from their cares, but that doesn't necessarily have a major impact, but it will for diabetes. And Lynn, it's not the focus of today because today is about making decisions, but there's a lot of surveillance going on here. Obviously, surveillance sort of yourself and your healthcare, we use it in that way. But, you know, Michelle's also raised this idea that people are watching your haemoglobin A1C and your sugar control. So even if you've written the numbers beautifully in the same coloured pen, (laughs) all looking nice, (laughs) someone knows that you haven't been doing the right thing. And that would be living under that uh, type of uh, watching would be hard. Yeah. I was reflecting as Michelle was talking that it's, although I can see that in some sense it's a normal life, it's also a lot of work. The duck is paddling very fast yeah. under the surface to get it to be a normal life. Uh, and yes, there's a lot of surveillance on, I guess, sense of feeling restricted. Even if you don't necessarily want to do something different, you know, you can't do something different and you have to plan ahead. And then thinking about decision-making, I was reflecting that 
there's an awful lot of decisions that kids actually are making and we might not think of them as medical decisions, but if they're at school and there are other kids eating lollies, there's a decision to make, isn't there? Am I going to eat it or not? And their parents aren't there and the teacher's Mm -hmm. not looking, so it is... And any Their kid decision. would be tempted by that, you know, so it's it's not just, you know, it. there's potentially layers of, what I was saying earlier, judgment or, you know, you don't want to be, to be a guilty type thing, but it's like, well, when you go home and particularly if, regardless actually of whether you have a finger prick that you go home and do when you get home from school or before dinner, and if that's high, it's then, well, why is that high? So there's, you know, it's, we we often will talk to families about, you know, we'd like it to look at the blood sugars or the glucose traces, whichever one they're using once a week and sort of see what's running, what's running well and what's, you know, not so in range and where can we make changes. But trying to do that in a non-judgmental way mm. that they're, that the kid doesn't constantly feel that this pressure of, you know, it's not excellent. So therefore, you know, is it worth bothering at all? So it's that kind of yeah, it's really How tricky. refreshing, Lynn, to hear the Irish woman not want to talk about guilt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can go there all, but that's a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> the, um, the question of uh, that idea of guilt reminds me, John, of, of something we've discussed a little bit in, in previous podcasts on, the, on deciding with children, which is the distinction between making a decision and being responsible mm. or taking responsibility. So there's quite a lot of taking responsibility mm. that mm-hmm. goes on yeah. here, isn't there? Um, and then the sense that if you haven't taken responsibility properly or well, uh, then other people will blame you or you, yep. maybe you will blame yep. yourself. So um, the more you talk about it, the more sense I get of this, this a child in many ways functioning at an adult level in terms of taking responsibility. It makes me feel exhausted, to be well, perfectly honest. What's required of them? Look, parents will tell us it is it is exhausting, you know, particularly... Um, particularly that constant, depending on how much they they dwell on things, and and but there's a constant sort of presence of diabetes in terms of the implication of that on any decision that you make, whether it's day to day taking the lolly, whether it's can they go on a sleepover, can we yep. go camping, yep. you know, all of those kind of things. How will that work with diabetes? Mm. And and I think different families have different levels of capacity to sort of roll with that, or for that to but it can become very challenging for mm. them to become more consuming. Yeah. Michelle, can you just help us think about then if we start with a younger child? I know that children of all ages can get diabetes. Yep. It just drops in on them. Uh, but, you know, we think about a seven or eight-year-old. and what, So what sort of can they do and, and how does the decision-making go in terms of getting them involved? involved? Yeah, so, I mean, if a seven or eight-year-old came in, say, through ED today and was newly diagnosed with diabetes, then we would certainly be, you know, involving them in their diabetes care from the get-go. Not necessarily the first injection, asking them to do it, but we would very much have an approach of, you know, the first injection or two will be given by a nurse with mum or dad assisting. The kids can, we get them involved in terms of obviously explaining what we're going to do, but then maybe choosing a spot or there, as in where on their body they would have the injections, would give them some some options as to where that might happen. Um, and then, you know, by so because they have four injections a day, by day two or three, you're into, you know, a few everyone's done a couple. And we would try and get kids to have 
help out with doing their injection, if not give their own injection in hospitals at the beginning. So, And if they don't, we would certainly be framing it in a way that that's what we're working towards so that they, not that they would do it all by themselves on an ongoing basis, but more that they feel they can do it. And that, and because I guess the parents are also learning at the same time, it's probably helpful for everyone for us to teach the kid rather than for them to teach the kid, you know, by, when they get home. But some, some children will take it on at certainly by eight. Kids can do their own injections using an insulin pen. And, and they can absolutely do their blood sugars. So with an insulin pen, they don't have to draw up no, the No, there's not a the needle and syringe type thing. It's literally turning, twisting the bottom of it and clicking up to you. It, it clicks up each time. And we'd always get them to check it with their mum or dad as to, you know, if their dose was five units, check that that's what they have. So yeah. I think you've, you've described, you know, one of the elements, I think, of deciding with children is a little willingness to be involved mm. in it. I'm not sure how much you've ask them, but I sense that you're directing them to be involved. And is that because them doing it, it goes better for them? And I mean, you have examples where the opposite happens, where the kid really doesn't want to engage and the parents have to do it and then it's harder or less good control? Sure. There's certainly examples and, you know, there are some kids where they're really nervous to do their injections. I think it. so everyone's nervous to do their injections, I should step back, you know, as in, and parents often will go, well, I'm totally needle phobic on day one. And you're like, well, we're going to get you over that pretty quickly, unfortunately. And that's not ideal either, but there's not a huge amount of choosing. Mm. And it is one of those things. So, you know, in terms of deciding with children, they don't have a decision whether they can have the insulin or not. Mm. That's not there. So the, the decisions then are around, well, where on your body, who's going to do it, you mm. or mum or dad or who, and you know, we will will sort of put limits around what can can be involved in the decision because there's some things that aren't optional, unfortunately. Lynn, I think that still fits with our model of deciding with children, doesn't it? We're not. It's not about giving all decisional control mm. to the child. There are some very important things that just have to be done, but still the child can be involved. And as Michelle's nicely demonstrating, there are smaller steps or smaller decisions within the bigger piece. Mm. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So uh, I think one of the, the keys to our thinking about this, as the more we've thought about it, is to be able to recognise those places where there is room for some decision to be made. And Michelle, I'd be interested to hear your comment about being able to tell whether there's room for a decision or not, and the extent to which you can uh, engage in a fairly explicit discussion with a seven or eight-year-old about these things you can't make a choice about, these things you can, there is room for you to choose, and and how do you describe the boundaries? Because it, it sounded when you were speaking as if every child ends up doing their own injections and the choice, there's not really a choice not to do that. Maybe there's a choice about when you start, but by the age of whatever, they're, everyone's doing it for themselves. Yeah, so that's very true, Lynn. So not all seven or eight-year-olds will leave the hospital having done an injection, and that's fine. You know, if they're if they're not in, in not able to do that, but we would, I guess, just in terms of say looking at the parameters of life and how things work. So um, in primary school, kids can, you know, manage without doing their own injections. I guess because they can be at home. Well, you know, it depends on the family setup and whether a parent is always there in the morning at breakfast and in the evening at dinner. And often in the middle of the day, someone at school will take 
ownership of supervision or, or administering the insulin. But then that also requires that to be there on the weekend and on holidays and those mm. kind of things. So mm. there's often just a practical yep. benefit <laughs> from being able to do your own. Mm. Although we would really never say that, a se- we would absolutely never say that a, a seven to eight-year-old should be left on their own to get their own injections, but they're not going to be at home making their own dinner anyway, you know, at a seven or eight. But if they weren't doing that, you know, when, when kids move to high school, there's very much a, a, a transition in what schools will do and they have an expectation pretty much. They don't have the same school supports, Mm. uh, you know, from a departmental level Mm. um, to support kids by giving injections. Nor do teenagers want to be going to the office at lunchtime for somebody else to be giving your injection to you. I mean, that's about as set aside in terms of being different as you can be. So we would typically frame it as this is the goal. And these are the reasons why it would be good for you to be able to do that and try and work, you know, work out what's important to them in their lives and what's, you know, what things they do that are, that may be situations where the more independent that they can be, the better. Or, and not just, not constantly, but so that there's the capacity to do that, like go and sleep in your cousin's house or your friend's house or go on school camp without a parent or, you know, just play sport and be off for five hours of the day on a bus wherever your team is going, that kind of stuff. Mm. So a lot of kids will come to the party because of the potential benefits to themselves. Uh, yes, and that uh, strikes me as an important aspect of uh, decision-making with children is the idea of um, explaining and discussing reasons, which to me is an important difference between uh, bringing the child into the camp about into the tent on the decision-making versus just telling them this is what you have to do uh, and maybe trying to give them all sorts of other incentives or tricks or whatever Mm. it is that you do, but then you're not actually engaging them in in your thinking. So it seems to me, John, that engaging a child in your thinking is an aspect of deciding with children, even if in the end there's not a decision for them to make, but if they've if you can have talked them through your decision-making, that's a, one of the earlier steps, I suspect. Yeah, and I think also what was lovely to hear then, and I mean, firstly, that it's happening at such a young age. Then we've talked about you know, preferences, so that might be left side, right side, you know, some even times that you might be able to move things around, um, but also values, you know, what's important to you. And, of mm. course, uh, not everybody <laughs> might consider... Uh, we're, we're sleepovers and sport and friends and things. But for young kids, those are their values. And I think that there are decisions, there's sort of medical decisions, which are sort of moving into the social decisions and decisions in the wider child's life. And it sounds really important that if we're able to engage the kids in those with taking the health care, that we can really help them through the condition um, perhaps with good control or hopefully so, but also sort of adjusting in their life and perception. Mm. I'm thinking, John, that one of the things that's hard about decision-making is the trade-offs, isn't it? Mm. I want to do this <laughs> and I want it, but if I do this, that will happen and I don't want that. And so making the trade-offs... Uh, what do I want more? <laughs> yes, that's really hard, isn't it? And it's a, I, I guess it's a thing to learn and you can practice it on little things and yeah. then ha- have developed that school skill to, to bring to bigger decisions. Um, but if you never give children an opportunity to practice mm. on, on the smaller things, it can be very difficult 
when there's a big thing, particularly, I guess, as we think when they get older and transition mm. into adult care as a young adult, um, without that practice behind them, uh, can make it really difficult for them. Absolutely. And we know that doesn't go very well in a lot of cases, um, not just not just relating to, you know, self-care, but there's a whole lot of other challenges in terms of just the differences in models of care. So the more empowered that they are themselves and the more, I guess, understanding that they have of their own condition and, you know, kids with diabetes and adolescents with diabetes, absolutely, as you alluded to in the, in the introduction, John, have a wealth of knowledge that we will never have. But making sure, I guess, one of our jobs is to make sure that they understand why we're asking them to do things and what we, you know, what what it is about the reasons we have, you know, why do we have different targets for blood sugars? What what does it matter if X, Y, or Z? Because the more that they have that understanding, then I think they're not universally, but more likely um, going to either, you know, try and engage or or at least be uh, have an awareness that. It's okay to have periods of time where it's not wonderful, but, you know, I need to get try and turn things around and what is it that's not working or what is it that is working. Mm. So at the moment we've been thinking about the younger child and we've been thinking about decisions and keeping you know, good sugars, but we actually haven't talked about what actually why and what the long-term consequences are. And I think it'd be good just to actually do that because I suspect you're not having those conversations really with the, the seven or eight-year-old, mm. as you might, particularly with me, if I suddenly get diabetes, but it may become more important with the adolescents. Is that right? So what, yeah. what goes wrong if your sugars are too high for too long? What are the complications? Yeah. So there are really quite significant complications potentially. So if you have long-standing, typically high levels of, of glucose in your bloodstream, then that glucose causes damage to the blood vessel wall and particularly the small blood vessels in in the backs of your eye, eyes and your kidneys. So diabetes is one of the more common causes of blindness and also of end-stage kidney disease um, in the developed world. And so it's, you can't, I guess, we do talk to kids about them. We wouldn't talk to a seven or an eight-year-old about them. But mm. if a 13-year-old came in, we would say, we would allude to them. We wouldn't dwell on the fact that this was, you know, this is a thing, but we would sort of say, more because sometimes kids would know other people or they might have had a granddad who had diabetes and wasn't too well with it. So we do, we kind of touch on it that there are health implications, but we know how to keep you healthy. And this is why we are doing this is so that you stay healthy. Mm. We do touch on it a bit more if, if things aren't going to plan and kids don't have, you know, the, the overall glucose control that might be ideal just so that they're aware. Because I think part of our job is to make sure that they're well informed in terms of you know, the impl potential implications, even though, again, we don't want that to become such that then there's sort of a nihilistic approach to, well, why would I bother if that's going to only be the, the end, end game? But it is important that we can't ignore that side of things either. So, Lynn, this is another element, isn't it, about deciding with children. The first was about willingness to be engaged and another is about truth-telling. It's pretty hard to, not to call it diabetes when you've got to have insulin every day, but actually, you know, knowing what it's really all about, um, delivered in uh, developmentally appropriate bites. And I think as you've nicely described, Michelle, really as, as carrots, low sugar carrots, mm. <laughs> um, rather than sticks mm. in, in terms of 
you know, using it to try and incentivise them but not threatening them yep. uh, with that. Yeah. And I think Michelle's nicely described the delicate balance. So if we take decision-making with children seriously, then clearly they need information and the information needs to be accurate, but it needs to be given in a way that's not overwhelming, exactly as you described, because you don't want them to think it's all hopeless. Yeah. Uh, but what you're really saying is you could die as a result of not managing your blood sugars. So that's a fact, mm. but it's also a pretty scary message, isn't it? And managing that balance between honestly informing but making it tolerable. Yeah. I imagine it's pretty tricky. Mm, it's a bit of a fine line. <laughs> and it is, and different kids will, you know, have capacity to, to hear the message or not is the other thing. So we sometimes get, so in the ways that diabetes can really seriously impact you and, you know, cause death, the one is the longer term implications, say, of so not just kidney failure or cardiovascular um, disease and early onset heart attack or something like that. That's definitely more in the future and, you know, harder for adolescents to wrap their heads around in terms of abstract thinking. But if you don't have your insulin each day in the way that, that you should and your blood glucose levels are running high, then then your body will try and make an alternative source of fuel that is called ketones and you can get a life-threatening complication in the short term, which you know, it is something we talk to kids about. That's why we want, need yeah. you to take your insulin. But it's often quite the wake up call and quite the, you know, it is a scary thing for kids to have and for parents to see. And I think, Michelle, um, this is sort of part of what we see, don't we, a bit more in adolescence. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a, uh, you know, a biological change. And I don't know if that upsets glucose control, but then there's the psychological changes. And I imagine adherence, which typically is in lots of other conditions, changes and if people really aren't taking their insulin, then yeah. there are serious complications. Yeah, DKA. that's that's absolutely right. That DKA is is far more likely to occur in adolescents. And so it can certainly occur in, you know, about one in three kids when they're newly diagnosed will have that because nobody knew they had diabetes. But beyond that, it would be very rare and pretty concerning for a primary school age child to have DKA because it's sort of a lack of oversight of what's happening in terms of the, because we ask for and recommend strongly adult supervision to make sure that insulin is happening. But there's a natural, you know, emerging independence and autonomy in adolescence that's appropriate. Um, but that transfer of responsibility for all of the glucose measuring and all of the insulin taking to an adolescent doesn't always go smoothly. Or it can go smoothly for some time and then something happens that just for whatever reason, things change. The adolescent isn't taking their insulin as consistently, not checking their glucose levels. Also, one of the issues is that you don't necessarily feel very, very different or very sick. You know, you may be peeing a bit more and drinking a bit more, but you can get quite sick quite quickly, even though in the background things had been deteriorating for a while. And, and what might underpin that? Is this just being slack? Is it, I don't want diabetes anymore? Is it, I want to die? Is it, um, I want to um, uh, annoy my mother? Yeah. Is it a weapon for, <laughs> bit for of all of the All of the above can be uh, factors. Sometimes it's actually not 100% intentional. It's, you know, just that there's so much going on in adolescence that it's, 
you know, for most kids who omit insulin, I don't think it's a conscious, deliberate, I'm not going to bother taking that insulin now. It just doesn't cross their minds to take their insulin and nobody is reminding them. Or parents may remind them and then they go to their bedroom and, you know, get distracted doing something else. Or they might just go, you know what, I'm not going to bother because it's a pain to do. I have to get out, go and find my glucometer. I have to go and find my insulin. So there's lots of different reasons that it, it can be. And I often have conversations with kids about because it, it is a strong tool or weapon against your parents in terms of their investment and sense of powerlessness um, sometimes. Um, so we'll often have conversations around trying to have arguments about other things other than diabetes just because unfortunately it's the young person who in the long run comes off worse for wear for that. So in those situations and I've known you know a few kids I've used have come in you know a few times in fairly short succession with the diabetic ketoacidosis the DKA obviously not taking their insulin or just you know, not enough and so you know how do your conversations go and how do you you know what do you do to negotiate with them to get back on track? Yep so it can be tricky so particularly when you know, in kids where it's recurrent, as in they've had a few admissions over a year or something, then there's more to it than just not wanting to take your insulin. Usually there's just typically in that scenario, the adolescent struggling for other reasons, maybe mental health, maybe just life in general and and issues with home or peers or school or whatever, or a number of the above. Um, and so we will often engage mental health and, and social work to to assist in terms of trying to get to the bottom of what it is and what what can help. But while we're doing that, you still need to get back to the whole, well, we don't have, as you were saying earlier, three months where you are okay not to take your insulin and then we'll start again. It, it still has to happen. <laughs> um, but then in that scenario, so, you know, we would have fairly frank conversations with the kid along the lines of, I, I'm not there, I, I can't give it to you. We would ask for a parental supervision again. And, and again, that's, you know, sometimes a, a bone of contention because it's in that whole, you know, nobody trusts me. I, you know, I, I'm supposed to be 15 or 16. I am 15 or 16. No one's treating me like I am kind of thing. But, you know, there are there are actual consequences in terms of your cognition and your ability to think straight when your blood sugars are high and DKA has effects on the brain. So how well and how how mm. consistently straight thinking, you know, is happening then is certainly questionable. Have you got wriggle room on the insulin regimens? Yeah. So that's something that we would usually suggest and put out there as an option. So in terms of where, where the four in, injections is, you know, insofar as insofar as we have a good mimic for what the body would otherwise do, that, you know, having insulin before each of your main meals mimics the fact that that would they would be the, the times when you would have most insulin um, secreted in your body uh, in the usual way if you didn't have diabetes. We can simplify a bit to having two injections. So having an injection in the morning that's a mixture of short and long acting and the same in the evening. And then you know, have, taking away two of the four injections um, just to try and simplify things to sort of, you know, reduce the number of times you have to think about having your insulin. It's a bit of a trade-off insofar as it's not, um, it certainly typically doesn't get as good control, but you can get, you know, kids who are coming in in DKA, recurrent DKA, don't have good control 
anyway, so you can get better control than that and you can certainly keep them safe and have enough insulin to not be coming in in life-threatening emergency situations. Does sound a bit like a decision, doesn't it, Lynn? <laughs> yes, yeah, so again, thinking as Michelle was talking about what sort of decisions are happening um, and the extent to which the, the child or young person is free to make their own decisions. So one, one of the things that's really striking about this situation to me is that there are an awful lot of decisions that uh, children and young people can make. So every time they do or don't do their blood sugars or give themselves insulin, they've got the opportunity to make a decision. Whereas typically, I think when we're talking about deciding with children in a hospital setting, we're thinking children don't have a lot of power at all. They're in the hospital. Uh, they can try to say no to things that might mm -hmm. not work out very well for them and it happens anyway, so they actually don't have much say at all, whereas there's an awful lot of, in one way, mm. there's an awful lot of say going on. But it feels like it might be a somewhat yes or no. Yes, I'm going to do this or no, I'm not. But there's not necessarily a lot of space to tailor it to myself. So you just started talking then about the number of doses per day and that might be a little a place in which there's room to do more than just say yeah, yes or just no. keep doing what you what what you're clearly struggling with, <laughs> which yeah. isn't going to, um, which isn't going to work. And that's usually where we would get to is in someone, particularly if they've had more than one DKA. Often, if they have one, some kids will absolutely express a preference for the two and say, "Yep, you know, I I know I never take my you know long acting in the evening and lunch is a real drama." So that sounds great. Others will say, "Well." Because when we get into it, there's less flexibility in terms of time when you can take your meal. You have to get up a bit earlier in the right. morning to have the two injections. Look, we know that not everybody does that, but in an ideal world, that would be the way that it goes. Um, and so they're like, no, I don't want to do that. And we would give that option after one DKA because for many kids, when they have one DKA, that's enough of a wake up call. And, you know, parents are back on mm. in the game. Mm. But if there's a few, then... Um, then that decision around, yeah, having to becomes more of a, this yeah. is a decision, but also a recommendation. So one, there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up on, Michelle. One is the idea of giving an option. So that's something that the clinician actively has to think about and do. Uh, and I'm not sure to what extent adolescents might know that there are options without you raising them. So is it, is it always within your control? You're the one who's going to decide when and when to offer options and what options they are, or do <laughs> young people come to you with their preferred option? No, that's a very good question. So we would probably steer them towards our preferred option as long as things seemed to be going okay. So we would usually not put out the option of two injections if there wasn't a reason to suggest, you know, that 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 the four injections isn't working so well. We we used to use more to twice daily injections when there was less support at school in particular for younger kids. Um, but it doesn't give you the same, I mean, I think it doesn't give you the same overall control. It doesn't give you the flexibility. And so it, in terms of mimicking daily life and having your lunch one day at noon and another day at 2.30, because that's the way life goes, you can't mm. do that with the two injections. So, mm. But there is a trade-off there, isn't there? Mm -hmm. um, some kids might prefer, prefer flexibility. Others might prefer yeah. only two that's jabs true. a day. And there are some kids who do really well with two jabs a day because they're willing to do the whole regimented thing. Um, so 
And if it if it's working, then that's okay. So so where, where we used to when we used to start more with two injections, we struggled quite a lot to then convince kids to to move to four, four. injections. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so we now routinely start with four, and then would bring in discussions around two if things if you know. So some kids really do struggle with school. It's now no longer the case that they would have no support at school. There's sort of departmental requirements for that to be in place. So that that is better. Um, but nonetheless, for whatever reason, there are definitely kids who are on two injections just because it's the best option in their own scenario. Mm. So the thing that, that I'm thinking about there, John, is that one aspect of deciding with children, which is in the clinician's hands in many ways, is is the decision about when to offer options. Um, and the way you've described it, Michelle, it's you're offering options when it feels to be needed because uh, the young person's not doing well with the option that you have given them, so now it's time to offer yeah. something else rather than say, okay, you're 12 now, here's the three different dosage regimens, which one would you Probably like because to go with? we don't think they're equivalent, I suppose. Yeah. So yep. it, it possibly is unfair to offer something that might be attractive to them that ultimately might not be in their best interests long term. Yeah. <laughs> so think, again, it's a juggle, isn't it? Yeah. Or it's a, it's a balance. Um, but it does show that the clinician in deciding with children still has quite a lot of control and power and their oh, yeah. decisions for the clinician to make about how to share decision making. Yeah, and that's making. clearly an overlap with, with truth telling as well mm. because you have to choose a reasonable a reasonable option. Lynn, one of the things I thought we might just try and move to is think about the parents in this because, you know, what we've discussed so far, which has been, you know, fantastic, is, is thinking about the, the child's involvement, their willingness to be involved, um, the, the truth-telling, I mean, the agency of their participation in giving their injections and uh, doing their their blood sugars and, and the sort of lived experience and how that relates to the rest of their life, all giving them, I think, moral weight around this. And, you know, what we're getting from the diabetic service through Michelle here is this engagement of, of children. And in fact, there are some studies out there, Victoria Miller, America has done a couple of nice studies which show that sort of engagement with the children actually results in better diabetes control. And I think though that's really nice to actually have some empirical data supporting what we're trying to do. But um, I didn't want to say elephant in the room. <laughs> but yeah, but there's, you remember when we sat down and, and, and we put the patient next to us at the desk and then the parents <laughs> are slightly further away. But, you know, they occupy a big space in this. And um, you're talking about responsibility. And I sense this is where deciding with children gets tricky to me because they can click the dial a few times and, and give themselves the insulin they can do their blood sugars and it's automatically recorded or they can write it down. They can do lots of things. They can decide where they're going to do it. But actually responsibility, and I think that clearly rests with parents, even when you might say, well, the kid's old enough to, to be responsible for themselves. Parents are still feeling responsible for their kids and therefore they've got a say in it. But as we we're starting to hear too from Michelle, sometimes in adolescence, that can complicate uh, things. So with all of that in mind, so where do you see the parents sitting when we're you know, considering shared decision-making, involving this three-way 
group, but where are the parents? How big are they in this or not? They are big players. There's no doubt that exactly as you described, John, they see and we would equally see them as having a big responsibility in the broader picture, particularly as kids are still in a, you know, minor age minority type thing, you know, obviously in older adolescents less so. And But if a child or a young person is 14 or 15 and has has shown that they're struggling to take on the responsibility, then it does come back to the parents. And we will often be quite strong with parents in that regard and go, you know, we need you to to be more engaged here because this isn't working in terms of where things are at at the moment. Michelle, can I ask whether parents and adolescents sometimes have different views about the two or four doses per day when you get to that point? Because you've described that uh, it sounds like from your perspective as a clinician, the four doses is better. So if the parents think that as well and the adolescent thinks two is better, how does that work out? (laughs) So it depends on where things are at, I suppose. Um, If... I guess if it was a scenario where we had brought up the two injections because we thought it was a reasonable option for this young person and in the scenario where where they're not maybe getting good control, then, you know, while on paper and in theory the four injections are maybe preferable, then there may well be some reason to, to at least give this a try. And we'd usually say with any change in regimen that... It doesn't have to be forever or it doesn't mean that if you change to this, that that's it forever, that, you know, we're giving this a try to see if things, well, where it sits in the broader picture for a given young person and then, you know, where things get to with that. So it would depend, I guess, um, often if we're sort of trying to rationalise therapy to improve things, the parents, it would be rare enough for the parents to you know, say these four, we have to stick with four. Mm. And we certainly wouldn't be encouraging or give weight to that necessarily because I think it's, you know, if if we would probably have only brought up the two in the first instance as a, as an option, it can often work the other way. If we're, if parents think, so the insulin pump, for example, is another option in terms of, of a, a means of giving insulin. So just tell us a little bit about the insulin pump. So the insulin pump basically is a, device that you wear either on your waist belt or on your pocket and there's a reservoir of insulin within the pump and then tubing that goes to a site that sits in the fat tissue so it's not a surgically so implanted a thing there's a, a very tiny cannula in your body and it goes in with a needle but the needle comes out and you change that every two or three days you can remove your pump if you're going playing sport or if you're having a shower or a bath or whatever and then reattach it without having to take the thing in and out of your fat tissue. But more importantly, it's it's one type of insulin, so it's all short-acting insulin. And there's a portion of that that you can program the pump to deliver. Uh. So the pump in the background will just be delivering however amount it's programmed to deliver at this current time of the day. So is that an attractive idea to parents who are worried about their child because the insulin gets delivered whether or not the child? So only that that bit that's sort of automatically delivered is typically about 35 or 40 percent of your total daily requirements. So then the rest of the insulin that's needed comes by the user or the wearer 
telling their pump every time they're going to have something to eat or drink that's got carbohydrate in it, what their glucose level currently is and how much carbohydrate they're going to consume. And then the pump has settings that are individualized to a person that then the pump does the maths. While it sounds attractive, exactly Mm -hmm. as you were suggesting, it actually is the most intensive way of managing your diabetes because you have to think about your diabetes every time you put something in your mouth as a snack or a meal or a coffee, uh, if it's a milky coffee. So a pump is only as good as the information that it receives. It actually is astonishing how many times people put something in their mouth. If you if you look at kids who, who do really good job with pumping, there'll be 10 or 12 boluses, like which is the them interacting with their pump and giving their pump information in a day. And then we see the other end of the spectrum where there might be two, even though kids will have three meals and mm. two or three snacks. So if you miss a bolus, then that doesn't go well and there's no capacity to come back from that until you realise and, and find out you've got a really high blood glucose and then try and backtrack. So it it is not something that we would recommend for kids who don't check their glucose levels regularly and mm. are already struggling with thinking about their diabetes at the three main meals. I can see it being attractive up. to parents yes, who want to be in safe. control. And I think maybe those sensors can can Bluetooth some information to the parents too. So if uh, Jimmy's at school, uh, mum's watching. Yeah, so that's a different thing. So the sensor is separate to the pump, although they can sometimes interface. There are combined pump and sensor models, but you can have sensor information, which is the sen- the glucose sensor that sits in the fat tissue that yeah goes to the cloud and then, and then parents. This is have. awfully difficult, isn't it? What <laughs> happens though, Michelle, I'm seeing a scenario, parent wants better control because they're an adult and they're thinking 10 and 20 and 40 years ahead. Child's a child and even if they're adolescent, teenager, they're not thinking that far ahead. So parent wants pump for good reasons and in yeah, the best interests of the child. Child doesn't want pump. What does Michelle do? <laughs> so in that scenario, Michelle would advocate for the child in terms of um, saying, yeah, that I would absolutely side with the child in that scenario. So I think they're the ones. So the biggest thing about a pump is that it's a almost full transition of responsibility to the wearer, the kid, the young person. And they it's a big step up in terms of what's required of them sometimes, you know, because it's even if they were already doing their their four injections, there will be another maybe three times in a day that that, that will be required. So, Michelle, so. though, I, I, the first part of that is I sense that, you, that that's pragmatics, which are very important. <laughs> yeah. It's just not going to put in the information properly. But I sense as a, as a paediatrician... There's another element, isn't there, here, that you're siding with them because they're making a decision that they know is is right for them and it's important for them to make decisions. Am I putting thoughts in your mind? <laughs> yeah, possibly, John, but <laughs> no, I think it's true, though. I mean, the, I, I, well, I actually, the other thing is I don't feel strongly that a, a pump is definitively better way to do insulin. And so it is if someone is really engaged, like you can get excellent control with, and, you know, it's the best mimic of what a pancreas would otherwise do. But 
it requires a lot of effort. So if the young person, for whatever reason, and it can be that they just don't want to be doing that, you know, programming things in eight times a day, or it can be they don't want to have it attached to them. It's quite visible more times in a day, taking out your pump um, and, and pushing the numbers. But I think, yeah, I mean, you know, so they're making that decision. That doesn't, like I was saying, it doesn't mean that they can never have a pump or that it might never be the right option for them. But if it's not the right option for them now, then there's a lot. It's a huge investment in time and, and energy and then day-to-day requirements. Uh, Lynn, do you think, as Michelle just described a wonderful <laughs> deciding with children tennis match, parent <laughs> says pump, kid says twice daily, and, and, and the decider, the, the tie break is, is the kid's view. Well, I was in fact wondering if it was a bit more complicated than that, John, oh, yeah. and, I, and I'm afraid the tennis analogy is going to fall apart because I don't quite see how to keep it going. But you might be able to help me. I was wondering, Michelle, how well children or young people are able to voice their view. So clearly some will be very forthcoming, I imagine, about what they want. But are there some children and young people who essentially go along with mum and dad because that's how it is and they might not be so confident to speak up and say, no, I don't want this pump if if mum and dad are really keen on it? Yeah, possibly or yes. (laughs) Um, But the process that's involved in starting a pump probably there'll be opportunities for that along the way, if that makes sense. So usually, so in terms of the practicalities, the way things work in our centre, and we just have quite a, because of just a resourcing issue with quite a long pump waiting list. So the, the starting point, because of that long waiting list and because there was a sense that maybe the pump is the best way when pumps started to become more and more popular more than 10 years ago now probably, was that we had kids on that waiting list who were just put on the waiting list and then when they got to the top of the waiting list and they were like, whoa, didn't realise any of this kind of thing. So we now have a dedicated information session for uh, considering pump start Mm -hmm. where the young person and their parents will meet one-on-one with one of the diabetes educators, see pumps, see what they look like, put one on, like put in a site in the fat tissue, see what that feels like, be talked through what's involved. So at that point, there would be conversations around who wants this. And we'd usually have that conversation in clinic before we even refer them to, Mm -hmm. but it's usually Mm. like, who wants the pump? (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like rather well-informed consent at that point, doesn't (laughs) it? Well, it sounds like two things. So yes, well-informed consent if you get to the point of actually inserting yeah. <laughs> it and, and seeing what it feels like. But it also sounds like that process has built built into it um, an encouragement for a, a prompt to make sure that the child or young person's view is elicited and it doesn't just get... Yeah, overridden. No. Overridden or never asked. Because about. they're so central to the whole, per, the whole use of a pump mm. requires 100% engagement from the kid. Um, so, yeah, they have to. Do parents find it. that frustrating? Maybe I'm just channeling my um, <laughs> impatient that, parent well, side. Or in-control parent. What, which bit of it? So if my child has diabetes and the pump gives you the best control, I want them to have the best control, I want them to have the pump, but they're not cooperating. <laughs> Am I going to get impatient with them or frustrated with them or try and push them? Does that happen? Do you have to referee between uh, parents yes, and children? Sometimes, but I think there's... So the pump, you know, overall, the 
overall difference in terms of benefit for, with a pump in real life scenarios in that HbA1c test um, that we were talking about is pretty marginal in mm, so okay. it it can be a lot better but it's it is you know most studies will come down and, and favor a pump but and obviously in a real life scenario, there are p people who use their pump really well mm. and people who don't use their pump well mm. and they're all mixed together sure. alongside the people who are injecting. So I can with hear you talking me down mm, as a parent, Michelle. You're saying <laughs> I've had this conversation. Actually, it's not going to be that much better and it's not worth having a big stoush. Absolutely. About. I mean, it, it is only as good as the information that goes into it and if the kid is not on board to put the information in, you're you're it's almost setting them up to fail and yeah. it's, that's not fair because it can still be something that, if it's brought in at a time when the young person wants it, it's much more likely to be successful. So it does sound like Michelle is engaging the family as well. And so I think we're not really got sort of limited, totally limited space. We can engage the child, we can engage the parents, and then we can try and bring that together. And a couple of times during the, the podcast, Michelle, you've talked about the role of the physician and you're trying to think about what is the best regimen. And then you're trying to think, well, what's the best regimen for this kid in, in this scenario? What about your role as a, as a coach? We're sort of fond of this in deciding with children. Do you think you have a role coaching the kid to be a decision maker and also about coaching the parents who are the natural decision makers in their family, but they may not be in a natural situation, a normal parenting situation. Do you think you also have a role coaching them to coach the kid? Yes, I think we do. I don't know how well we always do it in terms of how well we explicitly do it, I suppose. Sometimes it'll just be part and parcel of the consultation. But there are certainly times where, you know, making sure that the parents are on board is really important. So, you know, different parents have different challenges. And on board and with, with helping the kid sort of decide things rather than just making a decision for the kid. Yeah, both, <laughs> Not, yeah. you know, but like depending on what, what's involved. But I guess just actively encouraging their child to be engaged. So little things like in the consult room, we will try and, and look at varies with different kids. So some kids are much better if they, particularly if they're young, if they have brought a toy with them, then, you know, we'll have five minutes of the consultation where we're chatting about what's been going on at school and what's going on and what's good and what's not good. But a lot of it might be with the parent. But I think as things progress, as kids get older, it's really important that, you know, that we will try and coach families to sort of have the kid engaged in the in the consultation so that they don't sit there on their phone playing a game or, you know. And, and most families will be totally on board with that as well. But also I think trying to it's – a, it's a fine line because we're very conscious for – not to sort of give license for families to say, well, it's your diabetes, you should be doing X, Y, or Z because we're aware of the burden of it. So mm. we try and have it as a joint, you know, uh, responsibility. There are some very interesting research and data from like multi-center studies where we asked kids and, and their parents who was responsible for X, Y, or Z and got their, them to fill it out separately. And, and, the kids with best control, it didn't matter whether it was the parents or the kid who had responsibility as long as they both agreed on whoever had the responsibility right. for what it was. <laughs> so that they, you know, but it does show, I guess, a level of, 
engagement or conversation or, you know, agreement in the family yeah. and that that's, they're probably having more conversations about <laughs> whose yeah. job X, Y, or Z is and are in, engaged in that. So it's a really exam- interesting example of different levels of decision making, isn't it? So there's the decision about when to do the insulin or when to do the blood sugar. But then there's also the decision about who's going to take responsibility for that, which is the kind of the next step up. And I guess in terms of young people's developing capacity to make decisions, being able to think at those higher levels is um, is part of the progression. And I think, Lynn, you know, as we think about that progression from the, the younger kid, where, you know, the super young kid where the parents are doing all the decision making and then we're starting to involve the kid in, in doing things as we've talk, talked about here and then trying to promote the younger person making some of the decisions and being an active decision maker. It doesn't stop that shared decision making as a sort of an agreement model where everybody's happy mm, mm. with what's going on. And it sounds like that that's a, a place that we try and get to and it sounds like is the place which has uh, the best results. Now, Lynn, unfortunately, and Michelle, we're at the end of our time and we've had the most marvellous discussion and I think it's really helped us to understand deciding with children a little bit more and we've been able to spend some time thinking about the child and we spend time thinking about where the parent might sit in this arrangement and the role of the physician. So, Michelle, thank you very much for coming and uh, sharing My your pleasure. knowledge Thanks about diabetes me. with us. And, Lynn, thank you for coming along again and uh, helping us think about what are some of the ethical issues and how we can put deciding with children into practice and into play. It's a pleasure as always, John. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, give us a rating and share it with your friends and colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous donation of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded in the studios of Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. The podcast was produced by Dr Georgina Hall, Education Coordinator of the Children's Bioethics Centre. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of the Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, look us up on www.rch org.au forward slash bioethics essential ethics be inspired